Hello and welcome back to the latest installment of the Music History Project. Today's episode is all about the pioneers of rock and roll. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Dale. And Dan Del Fiorentino. And Mike Mullins. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a program that is over 3,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of the other interviews that aren't featured, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. All right. Thanks for joining us uh, on this week's episode. We're really excited to have you because we're going to be talking all about rock and roll. It's exciting to utilize the oral history interviews uh, in the NAM collection. And I'm so excited that we have the opportunity to talk today about some of the pioneers of rock and roll. We're sort of talking about those from the 1950s with the idea that we'll have some uh, future installments that include those Uh, in later years. But what a great idea to uh, start at the very beginning. And uh, just a special shout out to Elizabeth for going and mining through these interviews and finding some of these folks who ironically, everybody you're going to be hearing uh, from today from our collection have all been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So why don't we go ahead and just jump right in. We have a lot of content to wade through today uh, to really paint a picture for you guys out there. So um I think we're going to attempt to keep our comments to a minimum. That way you guys can really hear their stories. And so kind of our first segment is going to be more focused on the instruments and technology that helped, I guess you would say, create rock and roll that these musicians um, utilized to create this new kind of sound for the time. And uh, our first interviewee we're going to be hearing from is Bo Diddley. Anybody want to give some background on Bo Diddley? Well, certainly one of the pioneers of rock and roll. Wouldn't you agree, Mike? I would definitely agree. Would you ever say no to Dan? Like, no, I strongly <laughs> be like, actually, you know what? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> so Bo had a very unique style and that sort of shuffling guitar stro- stroke that he had has become sort of synonymous with the early roots of rock and roll. It's probably most predominantly heard on his recording of a song called Bo Diddley by Bo Diddley. Uh, He was born in 1928, uh, passed away in 2008, and we were lucky enough to interview him in 2005 for the Oral History Program. And he was, since uh, I did a little research on all those uh, that we're going to be talking about today, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame the very second year that it was in existence, which is 1987. And some of his uh, most noted songs besides Bo Diddley is I'm a Man and Roadrunner, which is my personal favorite of his. And interestingly enough, I was reading a book and uh, doing a little research on the early days of, of rap music. And there was a, a style of uh, songwriting and, and singing that going back to the 1950s called Dozen or Throwing Dozen, which was basically just rhyming on records. And so there are some experts who say that Bo Diddley actually recorded 
the very first of those type of songs, which was the foundation of uh, of rap music so many years later. His song was called Say Man, and that was back in 1959. So without a doubt, uh, a true pioneer in music, and it was an honor to record his story. So I appreciate the fact that uh, we're going to start off with Bo Diddley. So here's Bo talking about building his first guitar um, and playing it as well as having a guitar with a drum machine in it, which is pretty crazy. I just wanted to be different. And I built the guitar and came up with something that worked for work with what I was doing. And it's been my trademark for all these years. You know, 40, 42 years because I built it in 1958. And I came out in 1955. So I guess I would say, what, 46 years or something like that, you know, that that guitar has been in existence. Maybe a little long, maybe a year long, I don't know. You know, the Guitar Center up in Hollywood has uh yeah. That really wild guitar, I don't even know what you call it, but the one that has that uh, drum machine inside. Yeah, that's, uh, I built that as an experiment thing, and um, it works, you know, and um, I uh, got to thinking one day, supposing I come up and I can't find a drummer. So I said, I can care all build all this mess together, but the thing was heavy, you know, so. I lifted it, it's very heavy. <laughs> it's heavy. And so I decided to uh, give it to the the uh, Guitar Center. You know, I know David Waterman now, you know, very nice person. And uh, I put it in their window to let people see some of the ideas that I had, man, that's not all of them. I got, I got two or three others that I am letting nobody see. Hey, Frank. Hi, Bob. How are you? You know. See you in a while. All right. It's my guitar. <laughs> yeah. Um, Did you ever play that thing on stage? No. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't let nobody see it. <laughs> you know, I got one now that I want. I don't want nobody to see. You know, but. I built things so that you can't find a drummer. You need to play a gig. You want to hang around with people, you know. So I built one to fit that, you know. And I got to go back and do it again because what I built is heavy. <laughs> Too heavy that I don't fool with it, you know. But I figured out how to make it lighter. I was taught how to to make violins in school, you know. Hmm. So. So you understand the acoustic properties and all. Oh that. yeah, oh yeah. I have twelve years of classical music. All right, so that was Bo Diddley uh, talking about some of the guitars that he built as well as played with, played on. What would you say? Used. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Well, some Just of the played. Guitar- <laughs> <laughs> that was Bo Diddley talking about some of the gu- guitars he built as well as some of the guitars he also played. 
Very good. Thank you. <laughs> um, and next, we're going to move to our next interviewee, which is Dwayne Eddy. The king of the twang. Absolutely. One of the pioneers and uh, first sort of guitar heroes of rock and roll. He was uh, born in 1938, was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1994, and is probably best known for a couple of instrumental hits that uh, came out in the 1950s and early 1960s. One, of course, is Rebel Rouser. Heard on many soundtracks uh, and many recordings, and uh, because uh, they're young is another one of his big hits. And what's really great about Dwayne, he's a very approachable guy. He attends a lot of the NAM trade shows in Nashville, and so we've had many opportunities, including one in in 2009, to sit down and do an interview with him. So uh, it's exciting to add him to uh, this podcast of those who were pioneers in rock and roll. So here's Dwayne talking about the evolution of rock and roll instruments. I thought it was great that other groups came along and, and got ahead in instrumental. I, I always felt that kind of bolstered our, all of our strengths, you know, in the, in the charts. Um, Johnny and the Hurricanes came along and River, Red River Rock. And then, of course, the Ventures came along with Walk, Don't Run and, and Perfidia. And, um, uh, Two outs in those days. So there were all kinds of groups. And then the surf thing started in California off of that, you know. And um, so there was for about five or six years, five years, four or five years, whatever, uh, the, you know, instrumentals were uh, always a major part of the, of the chart uh, scene. So that short segment was Dwayne Eddy, and now we're going to hear, this is kind of be a little bit different, because who we're going to hear from next, the next voice you're going to hear, is going to be DJ Fontana, who, if you're not familiar, was the drummer uh, with Elvis, the early years of Elvis, but he's actually just going to be introducing Scotty Moore, and Scotty Moore is the guitarist who played with Elvis. So we're using DJ's voice to help us give us some background information on Scotty, and then we're going to hear Scotty talk about the creation of tape de- delay amplifiers. So here's DJ, then Scott. Scotty was, uh, we used to call him the old man. He was quiet, didn't say nothing. Uh, he didn't say nothing for 24 years. <laughs> so uh, I was pretty well in the middle of all of them. You know, I just, uh, I'd stay out of their way, let them fight. And they started the show, and they were the beginning of that, that era. And I was just an outsider, actually, you know, they hired me to do that. So I wasn't about to get in the middle of that stuff. Besides that, Elvis was tough anyhow, so I didn't want to fight with him. And, and uh, so I just stayed out of their way. And one day I was downtown in OK Hawk Piano Company, a music store, and there was a uh, ES, Gibson ES-295 sitting in the window. It was its number, and it was gold and had this ivory trim on it and boy that thing just just like you've seen the old thing with a puppy in the window you know like <laughs> and that was me and I said I gotta have it you know <laughs> uh, so I take I take the uh, the fender and uh, traded the fender in on the ES-295 and uh, then just Within a few week period, I had heard a record with Chet playing that had the the reverb, the slapback, 
that Sam was used on on the total record, the delay, which he was on all of us, the, the whole entire record. And then I heard this, I don't remember uh, what uh, song it was, but it was instrumental that Chet uh, had on RCA. And it was just, this sound was just on his guitar, wasn't on anything else. And I said, man, if I could do that, then when we went out to play, even though it would just be on my guitar, it would still, the people would could, could connect the sound to the record. So I started calling and finally uh, found out that this guy up in Carroll, Illinois, his name was Ray Butts, had uh, had put this amp, invented his amp. And the story was, found later, that uh, he played, played accordion. He had uh, played in a little band on the weekends, just, he had a music store, uh, did uh, electronic repair and stuff on amplifiers, radios, things like that and he had this idea and he built this amp that actually had a, a tape loop in the bottom of it it ran just like a regular tape machine but it was just a loop it record play and erase and you could electronically adjust the the uh, the delay on it to, to a certain degree and he made it and he got his uh, for his guitar the guitar player was playing in the group with him and they all liked it so well, they told him, said, man, you got to take this to Nashville and let Chet or some of the guitar players there hear it. And he did, and that's why I heard it. So then I got a hold of Ray. I went up to, drove to Cairo. Huh. And, yeah, I'll build you one. Now, he'd built the prototype uh, he had for the little group he was playing with. The first one he sold was to Chet. And I got the third one. Is that right? Yeah. So I went back and uh, uh, talked to the people at OK Howe because they they knew what was happening in Memphis with the record and how big it was getting everything. So they, uh, the manager there, he said, oh, "Yep, yeah, we'll we'll go with you on it." So they they financed uh, uh, the amplifier, and I so. In doing so, I traded the, now I'd already done these two, three records on Sun. So I traded the uh, ES295 gold in on a L5, which is way on up the line. And, and, and Ray built the amplifier and he brought it to Memphis to me. And so they financed the whole package, the L5 and, and the amplifier together. And I, I used the, the, that package on the last uh, session we did with Sun, uh, Mr. Train. And Mr. Train came, just became my signature song because of the echo thing on it. Mm -hmm. I did on it. I, I go out and I play that and they say, yeah, yeah, we heard that. You heard that song. You know? <laughs> so I, it was always pleased that I was right in, th in what I was, was thinking about there. That's great. You know? Yeah. What happened to that uh, guitar you traded in? Any idea? I don't know where it's at now. The last time uh, there was a there was a boy in the in the the store when I traded the ES two ninety five in, and I didn't I don't remember his name now, but 
and didn't know it at the time either. But when I left the store with my, all my new stuff, he bought the one I just traded in. Now he he lived in Memphis. Obviously he knew, I guess a fan, Elvis fan at her block. But he came to Nashville after he moved to Nashville. Years and years later, called me and told me, he said, I've got the guitar and uh, wanted me to authenticate it, and which I did. He came up and uh, I still got a little snapshot somewhere of it. Uh, or just set it up on the couch and we took a picture of it. But uh, a few years later, uh, uh, Jimmy Velvet came to me and had the guitar and wanted me to just sign it. But at this point, he, but Jimmy Velvet had a, a, a uh, he was heavy into collectibles and uh, had a museum over in Branson, Missouri. And the guitar had busted around the bout here a little bit. But it was, I was sure it was the one because the dump, uh, he had the thing where it authenticated with the other guy. When I lost track, I don't know where it's at now. I don't, I think it's gone off. <laughs> I don't know, never, never land. It sort of became a really important instrument. I, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> but I never, see, I never owned but one one at a time. I, oh, my old thing was like a guitar and an amp. You know, that's all I can handle. <laughs> Speaking of amplifiers, let's just go right into our next uh, little uh, clip here with Bo Diddley talking about early amplification. What sort of amplification did you... Uh, did you have in those early days? Uh, old Silvertone get amplified. I got Sears and Robux. <laughs> I know you actually did a lot of experimenting with, on your own in terms of amplifiers. Oh, yeah. Tell yeah. me about how that came about. No, I ain't going to tell you all that. Okay, tell me what you want to tell me about it. Huh? <laughs> tell me what you want to tell me about it. No, that's a different way of asking me the same question. <laughs> you know, uh-uh. Your lawyer? <laughs> no, sir. Okay, I'll try something else. <laughs> oh. No, it ain't nothing, no big secret. It's just that I just tried out different things and I found something that worked. People liked it, so I hung on to it. That's the way to do it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So that wraps up our segment on instruments and technology that kind of identified the rock and roll movement. And I just think it's pretty fantastic that um, so many musicians and inventors and innovators kind of, I don't know, almost came together during this time period to create this new sound and and, uh, change what was going on in popular music to fit this new rock and roll movement. Absolutely. And there's so much to be said about the roots of rock and roll and how it all began. Um, And maybe that's for another podcast. What's cool about this is that uh, we get to utilize these interviews in the NAM Oral History Program to tell that story by the folks that were there. And we're letting them do that without too much commentary, but it is really exciting to think about their all, all of their individual con, uh, contributions as well as the contributions that they made as, uh, as a unit, as Elizabeth alluded to. These were the pioneers and they fed off of each other and oftentimes inspired each other. 
So not only did the instruments and the technology kind of help shape the early rock movement, but there was also the people. The people created this very distinct sound because they heard the sounds in their head and then were able to put them out there into the world. And so we're going to kind of shift gears and talk about that distinct rock and roll sound. And the first person who's going to give us a glimpse into that is Dwayne Eddy, who you heard from earlier. So here's Dwayne talking about songs he would play, uh, the structure of early rock and roll bands, and the makeup of a rock and roll or rockabilly band. I used to sing with a friend of mine, Jimmy Dalbridge, who later shortened his name to Jimmy Dale, and uh, had a chart record in 1959. We sang together and uh, go up to Phoenix there for the amateur part of the show at Madison Square Garden, which is a bit, uh, well, I can't think of the word I'm trying to say, but anyway, it was no Madison Square Garden. It was a boxing ring. And this uh, promoter and disc jockey Ray Odom used to put on a show there Saturday night, and he'd have the first hour or so with a local talent, and, uh, and then he'd bring on his big-name artists like Sonny James or George Jones or whoever was going past Phoenix at the time. And um, then afterwards, we'd play for a dance, you know, the Sunset Riders, and I became a Sunset Rider, and they just moved the chairs back from the concert and show and, uh, and play for a dance till one in the morning. And uh, so Jimmy and I got up there and did that and did things like truck driving man, you know, like the Wilburn Brothers or whatever at the time for our influences and uh, Delmore Brothers and uh, so we'd uh, do songs like that Foggy Mountain Top and sure all breakneck speed Jimmy would stand up there and jump up off the floor if it reached the high notes he sang a harmony and it was kind of entertaining I guess they liked us and, but we were doing and we had to, in those days in Phoenix more the influence of West Texas than Nashville, we had drums in the band. And uh, so with the drummer rocking back there, you know, we had a, the makings of a rockabilly rock and roll band, didn't know it. We were just doing up-tempo country, you know, with drums. But that's eventually what my records were, was temp, uh, country, country music with drums, you know. Because they didn't use drums in Hank Williams records or any of the early country records down there. They wouldn't have them on the Opry for, I, don't, I went there in 1962, they still didn't have them. They had a hi-hat and, and a snare drum. So you could play a little afterbeat and whatever on the hi-hat. But uh, that's it. And uh, it's mostly people, uh, it's like with, uh, Hank Williams, you know, a lot of that, Chet did some of that, those records, and he'd just do a... And that was the, that was the drums, basically, you know. So adding to the concept of those who had a great influence on early rock and roll, we introduce uh, our first female into the mix, and this is Wanda Jackson, who uh, is often 
referred to as the queen of rockabilly. Sometimes they call her the first lady of rockabilly. And um, she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2009 as an early influence. She was born in 1937 and in 2017 um, released her her uh, autobiography, which was a very interesting read about her career and her background. And for those of you who may not be familiar, I would strongly suggest you pick up one of her albums. She's a, a very unique stylist who has uh, written her own music and has uh, contributed greatly to the uh, the influence of many other uh, female rockers over the years. So here's Wanda talking about uh, writing for herself and kind of being the first woman to do so. I wanted to record this rock stuff, but I couldn't find any original songs. Nobody was writing them that would be suitable for a girl. And uh, so my daddy said, well, you've written quite a few country songs. Why don't you just start writing your own uh, rock things? And so I tried, and, uh, it, you know, it was really pretty easy to write them. <laughs> and so I, I recorded a lot of my own. But the other ones, uh, as you mentioned, were cover songs because there just weren't any other things for me to do. So that was Wanda, and now we're going to send it back to Scotty Moore, um, who we heard kind of get a brief background from DJ Fontana, but we thought Dan maybe would like to elaborate on that before we hear from Scotty because they were buddies. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Yeah, Scotty was an amazing guy and it's always an honor to do anything we can to perpetuate his legacy. Being the the first guitarist to work with Elvis, they were just uh, out of high school when they first got together in 1954 and uh, recorded some amazing things that have been a huge influence on American popular music without a doubt. And um, Scotty was very humble, remained very humble about his contributions, um, but still he had that little glint in his eye that he knew that what he did was very special. And that's uh, meaningful to all of us who were influenced by him and, uh, and wanted to recognize that. Um, and equally cool is there were a group of people, uh, I'm proud to say I was one of them, that campaigned Uh, to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when they first opened that they should do uh, some induction of Sidemen. Um, Giving all the credit to the stars is great, but it's the guys behind the scenes like Scotty, DJ, and some others that we'll be talking about today who uh, really contributed to those sounds as well. So it was awesome that in 2000, the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame launched a new category called Sidemen, and uh, Scotty Moore was the very first person they inducted. And maybe my 75,000 letters had something to do with that. I don't <laughs> that's know. That's it? That's, that's all? <laughs> oh, wow. It's about how many emails I get a day from Dan. <laughs> so we're going to hear Scotty talking about his own kind of unique style and how he feels it changes each time he plays. Um, as well as some of those early Elvis recordings on Sun and then RCA. I'm sure you've been asked a million times, and one of the hopes of this interview is not to ask you the same five questions over and over again, but it it is sort of curious to me about your own style. I'd love to hear your thoughts on your style, because I've read some things where, well, your style sort of started after Elvis, and I don't believe that. I, I could detect your guitar playing even in those early country and western things. I can't uh, I can't tell you that I've got a style really I just, it seems like I'm, uh, it changes in, in my mind it changes 
uh, with, with whatever I'm playing. Mm. Uh, in the early days, with, uh, when I started with Elvis, I kind of got pushed into, I was just beginning to listen to uh, uh, Chet Atkins and Merle Travis and like I said, I'd been listening to mostly jazz and, and, uh, and country guitar players before. And uh, I was listening to, to these thumb and finger pickers uh, trying to see. I said, there's got to be two guys playing there, you know. <laughs> you know not, you know. And uh, anyway, when we cut the first, the thing was, son, it's mostly rhythm. And then something in the back of my mind, it sounded, uh, it just came out automa uh, automatically and I started playing rhythm and just putting some little stab uh, notes in it, not actually playing a thumb finger, uh, what I call a style. Hmm. And uh, Sam liked it and, uh, and, and so I continued that on most of the things we did on Sun. Because it was only just the bass, myself, and and Elvis playing rhythm guitar. Then when we moved on to R.C. Victor, then we added, uh, of course, added drums, and uh, added piano. So I could ease back. I had some help with the rhythm side of it, and then I started playing more uh, straight pick type stuff. And uh, still on some things, I would go back to uh, to the thumb rhythm. Just depending on the song. Mm -hmm. And uh, did you like that ability? I mean, was it sort of up to you to come up with how you were going to play? Yeah, yeah. We we that that was one thing. It was uh, uh, we all worked together, and uh, nobody said, "Well, you've got to play this." Or we just kept working on things until it, everybody everybody was happy, mm. and it. Uh, we look for a groove, for to, for feel, an overall feeling. And Elvis would, if we, uh, if I made a little, uh, hit a note that wasn't clear or even a wrong note, accidental, uh, if the whole thing felt good, I can go back and show you a bunch of those. And he's ah, feels good. Now, now we'll lose it if we do it again, you know. Mm. And he's right. I mean, he's just, uh, you reach that peak, uh, we better quit. He yeah. starts going downhill. Okay, next up on the Pioneers of Rock and Roll podcast here, um, utilizing interviews from the NAM Oral History Program, it's time to introduce our first songwriters. And uh, to do so, um, we're hitting the pioneers of Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, who were um, high school friends. Um, they deepened that relationship during college and really had the same idea of creating songs, writing songs together that were humorous, that they could try to get their heroes, uh, rhythm and blues mostly artists, to record them. And so they sought off people like Big Mama Thornton, uh, who was an unknown bar singer at the time. She had some great recordings but really hadn't broken through um, until they uh, convinced her to record a song they wrote called Hound Dog. 
And a great story about that is um, they weren't particularly enamored with Elvis's version of it because they felt like he took the complete meaning out of it and just made it into a, uh, a rock and roll tune that didn't have the same soul and feel that, uh, that uh, Big Mama's version had or what they intended when they wrote it. But they soon forgave him. I think when the first royalty check came, I think their attitude changed, and that's according to uh, Jerry Lieber. They were great guys. It was a joy to interview them together, to watch their partnership, to see their friendship. Um, it was neat. Uh, you know, Jerry was having some health problems at the time of the interview, uh, which was in 2007. And I just remember seeing Mike kind of sit back and let Jerry tell the story with a glint in his eye. Uh, really a, a neat partnership. And of course, they wrote tons of songs. Uh, we'd be here all day if we listed all of them. Among my favorites, um, a thing called Jailhouse Rock. So Lieber and Stoller were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame only the second year after it began in 1987. They were also inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame a couple of years before that. So a, uh, a great coll a collaboration, a great team. One of my favorite things about them is the fact that they wanted to introduce humor into music. And among those that they wrote were a bunch of songs for a group called The Coasters, including Yakety Yak, Charlie Brown, and some others that you may remember that were very funny. And Jerry was very proud of the lyrics on many of those songs. But interestingly enough, they began, as I said, trying to get their rhythm and blues heroes to record their songs. And when that didn't work and rock and roll took shape, they were very happy to, uh, to write these songs that were in movies and uh, million selling records. A little bit later on in their career, they, uh, there was a uh, revival of their music and that brought them out to doing recordings and interviews again and that's when we were lucky enough to catch them back in uh, 2007 I believe. Uh, Jerry, they were both born in 1933. Jerry passed away in uh, 2011 and uh, like I say it's uh, it's pretty much not a, a complete podcast about the roots of rock and roll and the pioneers without these two guys. So here's Jerry and Mike uh, talking about the early writing of the blues, using other records as inspiration, and then going on to talk about comedy in rock and roll. Did you feel like you guys really hit it off as far as your understanding of rhythm and blues and the blues, or did that develop over time? I mean, we started writing very sort of simple versions. Not how much simpler can you get than the blues, but we started writing simple versions of ideas that we'd heard a number of times on other records. Mm. You know, Amos Milburn and Charles Brown and B.B. King and Jimmy Witherspoon. I mean, we, used to, we were fans of all these singers. And at a certain point, we tried to write like what they sounded like. And it's very much like an artist going to the Louvre and sitting there trying to copy uh, whatever, you know, a great painting. And uh, we realized that for us, that's the way to do it. And we kept on writing until the songs started to sound like real songs. Because at first they didn't. And they, uh, they were songs manquet. You know, they just, yeah. they sounded like what they were, which was topic. imitations of the things that we loved. And oddly enough, um, it was due to the fact that uh, a certain 
of our own personal uh, choices and personal thoughts at Jerry's own brand of humor and my desire to have some elements of music incorporated um, that mostly that was the reason that some of our songs started to become hits. Was there a lot of comedy, do you think, in, in, uh, in rock and roll? Um, I think there was, a, in the early rock and roll, whatever rock and roll means, but it, there was a lot of joy in it. There was a lot of happiness in it. Uh, as rock music developed, that seemed to get lost in... Uh, Interpretations of what words are about it. And, and also in the stories, or the, even the simple tales that they told of uh, heartbreak and uh, struggle, and um, they didn't reflect the, the joy of the early rock and roll songs, the, like Fats Domino and, you know, that great, wonderful feeling that the, those records can, uh, can give you. So that was Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller talking about some of their early work in songwriting. And we're going to round out this segment with Ike Turner, who uh, is known for helping write and record maybe one of the first rock and roll songs ever, Rocket 88. And so he's going to tell the story about meeting up with Sam Phillips, driving up to Sun to record that major hit. And every Saturday night when we get through playing in Greenville, we on our way back, back home. Well, Greenville is about uh, 60, 60 or 65 miles from Clarksdale. And uh, uh, we would be coming back into a place called Chambers, Mississippi, right by Mount, by, right by Mount Bayou, Mississippi, where most, uh, Mount Bayou is an all-black town down there in the south. And about two miles from there is Chambers, Mississippi. And this is where, every time coming back, we see all this line of cars down by the freeway. And we went, man, who is in there, you know? But we never would go in. So finally one night we got nerve enough to go in there. And guess who was on the stage? B.B. Well, see, I didn't know him as B.B. I knew him as Riley King. Uh, 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 and, and, but we haven't seen signs around saying B.B. King will be in Chambers, so we didn't know who B.B. King was. And so that's who he was. And, and, and he had records out and, and the stuff. So we went in and, and uh, um, asked him, could he let us play a song? You know how kids are, I'm dying to get up on stage. And so uh, 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 he said, yeah, come on. And we, we got up there, man, and we started playing. We made it so hot, it was real hot for his band. <laughs> and so anyway, he said, man, you guys need to be recording. And we said, well, how do we do it? You know, because we, we had no idea where you go, who you talk to, nothing. Because in Clarks Hill, there wasn't no, even a music store, you know. So, so uh, uh, uh. anyway, he, he, he told me about Sam Phillips in Memphis. And so, uh, 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 had he already been up there and, and recorded with Sam by that time? No, I, I didn't never heard of Sam. Oh, okay. And, and, and so he said, "Well, I'm gonna make a, uh, an appointment with Sam uh, 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 and tell him to call you." Mm. So, and so, anyway, that was like on a Saturday. Monday morning, Sam Phillips called, and when Sam called, he said he heard that we had a good band and blah blah. blah but he wasn't even interested in recording us, and he said, "Well." 
well, uh, uh, how soon can you come up? I said, anytime. So he wanted us to come up that Wednesday. And man, that Wednesday, it was raining. And so we all, we had the big upright base, and we would wrap it with a tapoya and then tie it on top of the, the car. And, and then we put all the, 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 the amplifiers and things in the trunk. And then the trunk would be up, but we would tie a rope around the bass drum where it wouldn't fall out. We would wrap it. And anyway, that's why Rocket 88 had that distorted uh, guitar, was because it got wet. When, when we had a flat tire and we took the stuff out, the amp got wet. And when the amp got wet, uh, uh, the police came and Highway Patrol, and he said we were parked too close to the highway, and, and they, we, they were going to arrest us, and they, they took us to a kangaroo court. And so what happened is when we got to Sam's and uh, we set up uh, to play, uh, Willie Kids and I hit the, hit, hit the guitar, and they said, and, 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 and Sam Phillips said, what's that? That's great, man. And so that's when he... We decided to use that that sound because it was no fuzz tone and things in those days, you know. That is amazing. Yeah, <laughs> that's a yeah. good story. Yeah. What was the name of the guitar player? Willie Kidsai. Oh, that's right. Okay. Okay, so that wraps up our segment on um, the sounds of rock and roll. Uh, Ike Turner there. And speaking of Ike, just a little bit of information about him. He was born in 1931. Uh, passed away in 2007, just about two years after we were able to interview him here at the NAM headquarters in Carlsbad, California. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1991 as a early pioneer and contributor. And the uh, the song that he was talking about, uh, Rocket 88, was recorded at Sun Studios in Memphis, Tennessee in 1951 and has also been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year, as a matter of fact, 2018. So it was really only in recent years, just a few years before he passed away, did Ike really get uh, recognition for playing the piano and writing the song Rocket 88. Uh, as he has alluded to in his interview, not a lot of historians have stepped forward to say that was definitely the first rock and roll song. Um, I'm on record as saying that's my opinion, uh, just because of its uh, use of the electronic instrumentation and the beat and the rhythm and the fact that nobody was really doing that quite that same way prior to. So um, so I love the fact that we're including him as part of the pioneers of rock and roll. And um, in our next segment here of our podcast, we're going to be talking about recordings. So we'll get right back into it with uh, Ike again, talking about writing Rocket 88. When we wrote Rocket 88, we put, uh, we, we had Jacket sing it because he sounded like Jimmy Liggins. And so what I was playing on the piano was, was, was more like boogie woogie, you know. And so uh, what, in reality, what happened was um, uh, 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 Sam Phillips and Dewey Phillips was good friends. Dewey Phillips was the hottest disc jockey in the South. Music that we played back in those days was called race music. So white radio stations didn't play race music. So. Sam Phillips got Dewey Phillips to play Rocket 88 on his show. And all the white kids went flying to, the, uh, to Woodworth and all of those kind of stores uh, uh, to, to buy the record. And, and, and that's when they found out that white kids would buy black records. So now what Sam Phillips wanted to do was find him a white boy to sound like a black boy. And, <laughs> and, and uh, anyway, uh, 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 
that's where Elvis came from, and and just, uh, 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 what's his name? I thought I said Joey Lewis. No, uh, oh, Jerry, J Lee. J Jerry D. Lewis. Right. That's where all these guys came from, playing this kind of stuff. Right. And Little Richard, like he admits, uh, and you know, you can't get Little Richard to admit nothing. He admits in my book that I wrote, uh, taking back my name. He said he stole the intro off of Rocket '88. Uh, uh, that's the intro to, uh, uh, I think it's Good Golly, Miss Molly. Yeah, yeah. Say, say he took it off note for note. <laughs> so where did the idea of Rocket 88 come from? I mean, did somebody own a, an 88? No, no, man. <laughs> we wish, we just like some people wishing they had a Rolls Royce today, man. $350,000. Because it was cheap in those days, but uh, the Oldsmobile just that came out, and we had a little thing we used to do in the car. Uh, 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 if, if I would bet you a quarter a dime that I would see more Oldsmobiles uh, that I wouldn't see, you wouldn't see any Oldsmobiles from here to the next town. And so we bet like that. So we were betting, up, we were making a bet on what cars would be the most. And, and so the, uh, at the time we were talking, a Rocket 88 passed by. I said, you don't bet you don't see another one from here to Memphis. And, 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 and then, that, then along, right along at that time, we thought about, uh, 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 man, we don't have nothing to record because everything we're playing is, is on the jukebox already. So then we go, uh, 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 that's when we decided that uh, uh, we were going to write Rocket 88. Hmm. And so all of us started adding our little two senses in it. And then we got to Memphis, it was a, about eight to ten uh, pieces of paper with, 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 with verses on it. And I got together with that lady that worked for uh, uh, Sam Phillips, and uh, she typed it out. And oh, Marion? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 uh, we we put it in order. And then I went in the room. It took me about maybe ten minutes to, to put the music together. So, are you the official songwriter, or is yeah. it a group of people? No, 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 no. It was all of us. I didn't write it by myself. No, oh. we all we all was. Uh, Find, trying to find out what what what, what was uh, 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 good, what was bad, and uh, but I was more the 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 creator creator of the song. But you know, and uh, mm. you know, I don't know, I don't know till today who they gave credit uh, for writing it, because Sam Phillips uh, he said himself that the reason he didn't put the record in my name because it was it was supposed to be. Ike Turner is Kings of Rhythm featuring Jackie Brinston, vocal. And he put it, Jackie Brinston, like, uh, and didn't even mention the Kings of Rhythm or nothing on it. He said Jackie Brinston, Delta Cats, or some stuff like that. And he said his reason for doing that because his plan was to record me as, 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 as a single act, and he didn't want to have two acts out at the same time. Some crap like that. And anyway, Sam and I fight, like, fight about that every time I see him. And, <laughs> And anyway, when I die and go to hell, we're still going to be arguing about it. <laughs> you know, that's where, I, that's where I think I'm going, because I want to be with all my friends. Stop. <laughs> well, it was a big hit at the time, Rocket 88, right? Oh, God, yes. That's what they got me in the, in, the, in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for right now. Hmm. And, and, uh, and uh, I'm sure they did their research, uh, uh, I would think. But but, uh, but but you know they never say that it was uh, um, when you read about it in magazines or whatever uh, 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 they always say 
it was said that Rocket 88 was the first rock and roll record in history. Uh, it's believed to be Rocket 88, the first rock and roll record. They never say directly, rock, this is the first rock and roll record in history. So I don't care because it don't add, uh, uh, add money to my, to my pocket one way or the other. You know, same thing. If they say something negative, uh, just so they spell my name right. <laughs> Would you be so kind as to play a little bit of what you did on Rocket 88? Well, maybe just a couple of bars. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm on that. Yeah. Sofo's on. That was beautiful. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so that was Ike, and next we're going to switch it up and hear from a new voice, which is Dave Bartholomew. And I don't think you can have a Pioneers of Rock and Roll without including Dave. So uh, why don't we have Dan give us a little bit of background? So this is our third songwriter in our mix today. Dave, of course, was the uh, musical director and trumpeter behind most of Fats Domino's recordings. The two were uh, f neighbors and friends for many years and uh, wrote a bunch of big tunes together, including Ain't That a Shame in 1955. They did uh, Blue Monday and their, probably their biggest hit, I'm Walking," which was also in 1957. And uh, he was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1998 and just a few years before that into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame along with Fats Domino. He was born in 1920 and uh, is still living in New Orleans. And we're in contact with his son, Ron, who has been a big supporter of the Oral History Program and, in fact, is the one who helped us land our interview with Dave back in 2003. And it's just, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Fats Domino. I thought he was definitely one of the uh, the founders of rock and roll. So to hang out with his partner and to glean some of the stories of them working together and collaborating on these amazing recordings was just a real thrill for me. So I'm very happy to, that we can include uh, some of Dave Bartholomew's interview in today's podcast. And here's Dave talking about the song Big Beat Keeps You Rockin' In Your Seat. Was that Big Beat Keeps You Rockin' In Your Seat? Was that one yours? Uh, yeah, yeah, I wrote that. Uh, that uh, what happened, uh, Lou Chen was the uh, president of Imperial Record Company. And we, I had a date in Houston. In, uh, wait, wait, I, had, I was going to uh, Jackson, Mississippi. I think I told you that. Right? And he said, uh, the man is going to give you $50,000 for the theme of the Big Beat. I said, well, how, what, do, what do you want? How do it go? He said, he left that up to you. So we were working in Jackson, Mississippi that night, so I always had a tape recorder in the car. So Mr. Hall, I'll tell you about Mr. Hall. Mr. Hall was driving. And when we got to Jackson, Mississippi, I had finished the tune. The big beat, da 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 And when I came back, I sent him a little tape I had that with Frank on the piano so he could hear it. He said, man, that's just what I want. Hmm. And he paid me. Wow. I only got $50,000, but I, mean, I know it made millions. But that's what he told me in front what he wanted. It wasn't Lou Chud. It was the guy producing the thing. That was Dave, and now we're going to be hearing about the song Rebel Rouser from Dwayne Eddy. What's the story behind Rebel Rouser? How did you come up with that theme and that idea? Well, um... 
I don't know, we sat down in the studio that morning. I think it was like March 16th or 17th, one of those days. And uh, we hadn't talked talked about anything. We were just going to record something new and different. And um, so I had this little idea just to play the melody, you know. I mean, just to, so I started to, guitars and stuff, so we did it with sax, but we added that later. Didn't have a sax player in Phoenix at that time. So we cut the track there, and uh, we went along, we thought, well, this can't just, it's getting a little boring just repeating that, so we thought, well, we'll modulate, you know, so we went. And uh, then we left a, left a place for the sax, and then uh, came back in with me and finished it up. And then um, Lee took it over to California and to L.A., Hollywood, and uh, put Gil Bernal on sax, overdubbed him, and, and um, the Rivington, oh, well, they were the Rivingtons later. At the time, they were called the Sharps. You know, they were part of a, a Thurston Harrison the Sharps, and the four Sharps were just a good background singers, and, and Carl White of the group was a great lead singer as well. But they uh, did the hand claps and the yells, and they, they just started yelling and, and the excitement of the thing, you know. And Lee said, what? <laughs> and then I said, sorry, Lee. And he said, that's all right. He said, I like that. Keep it in. So they did. And that was the record. What did you think of that when, when you heard the, the clapping and the... No, I was stunned. I was, uh, Lee sent me a copy of the finished record, and I... And from the track that we'd cut, it changed quite a bit. And uh, I wrote the song, but I felt like he always earned, we split everything, and I always felt he certainly earned his half of the writing for all that creativity and the way he mixed it and the way it, it sounded and everything. It was just entirely different. I just, first time I heard it, I thought, that's, man, that's way different than what we did. And uh, but I, I liked it, and I thought, okay, this is the record, you know. But it's, it's certainly strange. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you were sort of off and running with that style, weren't you? Yeah, that defined it for me, that, that record. I mean, moving and grooving was... thing earlier in the year that uh, that we never got off the ground because we didn't have enough money for a B-side, really. <laughs> it was called Ramrod. A friend of mine wrote it, and it was... Um
but it was that's all it was. I mean, but that was both the high thing and the low. But Rebel Rouser was strictly on the low strings, and that's where I stayed pretty much from then on. I still did did some things that were up in the higher range, but all the always the melodies and things were in the bass strings. That was Dwayne Eddy talking about his hit Rebel Rouser. And next we're going to be hearing from DJ Fontana, that drummer who played alongside with Elvis. And who better to kind of introduce DJ and give us a little bit of his background than his buddy Scotty Moore. So you're going to be hearing Scotty talk about DJ and then DJ talk about the hit recording that was Heartbreak Hotel. We played a few few things around Memphis and and such, and but when we get us out of the studio, we did not listen to the record, or such. It sounded so, so empty with just the three of us, even with Bill slapping. But you didn't have a PA system. I mean, he's sitting over here and then just. I mean, he's playing it, but it couldn't you couldn't hear it. Mm-hmm. And I'm up close. I hear a little bit of Elvis's guitar. And there again, I'm basically it with because I've got the amp. And uh, so one met up with DJ in Shreveport, and he was playing behind the uh, the scrim, you know, the real thin, the curtain they have on stage. They had him playing behind that, because drums weren't allowed out on stage back then, Is country right? in country music, no. Huh. And uh, and so I went, uh, I went to I don't know straight to him or or. Uh, the manager, whatever, and said something about can we get DJ to play with us too? Didn't even know his name, I don't think, at the time, but he he came back and we introduced it, you know, and uh, we played him what we was going to play, and he said, "Oh yeah, I'm, you know," I'll, and uh, he didn't have a full set of drums back there; only had a snare drum, I think, and uh, maybe a little cymbal or something, mainly a snare, uh, one mic. It was just to help the guys out in front that could hear and help with the rhythm. And uh, so he played behind the curtain our first show. All right, then when we went back down there the next time, well, Elvis went to Horace Logan, who was the manager, and said, we want DJ out playing with us, and which he did. And that's when we he started playing with us all the time. Mm. And uh, so then I had the drum. Had D playing a full set of drums, uh, I could ease back a little bit and play, start playing a few more fills and uh, a few other. Uh, could take chances then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Broadened your could ability. Re- could really get out on that limb and get it sawed off, you know? Which is half the fun, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'll go back to the, um, the Heartbreak Hotel. Oh, I don't remember. No, I don't. I don't remember that. Uh, we didn't do it at RCA there. You know that uh, on the corner up there, RCA B. We cut that at, at around the corner there. They had a little it was an old church, and it was there. And they had a little room made, you know, for a studio. RCA did, and there was no echo at all in that, and no echo places or nothing like that. So what they did to get that, it was trying to get that same sound of sun, which they never find, they never did get it. 
Sam was too smart for him, you know. And uh, what they did, the engineer said, well, we got to get this echo going. So they run some mics down a hallway and picked up the, and we couldn't walk down the hallway because of footsteps, you know. And uh, that's how they got the echo on that first uh, Heartbreak Hotel. He let me do the hound dog thing. And then he let me do the jailhouse thing. Uh, but probably some of my favorite stuff is, is the Dixieland music we did. Uh, what, what was the name of that? King Creole. I, I can't remember all them things. Yeah, my wife knows it. But I, I thought that was fun. You know, we had the Dixieland players. The whole, everybody played it together. It wasn't that you overdubbed and fixed this and fixed that. Because he didn't like to overdub anyhow. And when he recorded, he wanted everybody surrounding him. And they said, oh, that was, we, we can't, you know, separate this. He said, that's your problem. Separate it. I'm staying right here. But he had the power. He could do that, you know. Most guys can't, but he could. So, but he felt comfortable with all the guys, horns, whatever's there. He wanted them all together. So once again, that was DJ Fontana and before him, Scotty Moore. And next up, we're going to hear a new voice, uh, Lloyd Price. What can you tell us about him, Dan? Also a pioneer in rock and roll. Uh, He was born in 1933 and is uh, still living in the Connecticut area. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1998 and is probably best known for for three songs, uh, one of which is uh, really, to me, a cornerstone in the roots of rock and roll. It was called Lottie Miss Clottie. It was recorded in 1952 as sort of a joke, and uh, he really just, he just nailed this whole concept of bringing jump blues and rhythm and blues together in a new way, and it was really very influential. Uh, many people recorded that song, Paul McCartney has often said that was one of his earliest uh, favorite songs. Elvis recorded it. It's uh, a great song. I personally love the original recording from 1952 with Lloyd singing because my hero Fats Domino uh, is on piano, a fact that I did not know all growing up and only knew about that, uh, I think, maybe about 20 years ago. So it's really cool that uh, this, this song was such an influence. Um, unfortunately for his career, he uh, was drafted and wasn't able to record any almost immediately after that song came out. And then rock and roll just hit and people like Elvis and Buddy Holly and all those uh, pioneers, Chuck Berry among them, um, came out to prominence and poor Lloyd was uh, stuck peeling potatoes as he once told me. Um, but however, when he got out, he was able to get a recording contract and hit uh, number one with two other songs, um, still in the 1950s, one Stagger Lee and Personality, 1958 and 59, and recorded a lot of other songs after that, but those were his uh, three biggest hits. So he was definitely a pioneer, and it was a real thrill for us to interview him uh, for the Oral History Program in 2016. So here's Lloyd talking about writing his first song and Dave Bartholomew helping him record it, as well as the song Personality. So I learned how to play this eight bar blues and one day I was sitting at the piano thinking about my little girlfriend, Nellie Dukes. She left, she quit me. So I was, Lordy, 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 Miss Claudy, girl, you show. I was thinking about her and putting these words together. And as we now know, uh, I, I, 
Dave Bartholomew stopped in the shop one afternoon and heard me playing this because I did it every day, you know, trying to learn how to put things together on the piano. And he came in the shop to get a sandwich, and I didn't pay much attention to who would come in. I'm banging on the piano. I looked around, and I saw it was Dave because he was like the biggest thing around New Orleans. He produced Fats Domino. You know, all this language I'm using now, I didn't know then. He was like a A&R man. He came over to the piano and he said, play that again for me. So I played it again for him. He said, I kind of like that. Uh, there's a guy coming here from California. His name is Art Roop. He got specialty records, a gospel label. But being that Fats Domino seemed to be, you know, playing music that kids like. They want to get somebody a little younger than Fats Domino, and this could be a hit record. Now, all this is Chinese to me. I, I don't know what he's talking about. Now, he's such an image, you know, to me, and in, in, in that era, uh, I'm almost too shy to look at him. So he asked me to play it again. So I tried to play it again for him, nervous. He said, okay, when this guy come, I want him to hear that. So I didn't think nothing of it. Three or four weeks later, I got a call from him again. My mother called said, there's a guy named Dave Bartholomew on the phone who want to talk to you. I go and talk to him, and he said, there's Art Brood is here. I'd like for him to hear that song. He asked me to come down to Cosmos, J&M Music, down on North Rampart Street in New Orleans, so he could hear this song. So I did. When I got there, Fats Domino was at the keyboard. Salvador Doucette, uh Earl Palmer, Lee Allen, uh, uh, Herbert Hardister, C.J. McLean. Now, I know who these guys are because I'm now kind of like following in music. I'd seen Dave's band. I'd seen him on the stage with him. You know, when he come out to play a prom or something like that, I would always be there. And I see these great musicians, and here they're all in the room. So I met Art Root. He asked me to sing the song for him. I did. He said, wow, this could be a smash. It's another word I never heard before. So he asked me, what key was it in? And now this is really knocking me off. What key? I have no idea what he's talking about. Dave said, go over and sing it to, sing that to Fast Domino. So I'll go over and sing Lord of Miss Claude of the Fast Domino. He says it's an A-flat. <laughs> this is all brand new. So I go and uh, he said, okay, you go over there behind that curtain and uh, sing the song and we're going to play. He told the band what to do. I'm just listening. So he says, okay, when Fast Domino make an introduction, I never heard of that before, even though I've had a little band my brother Leo and I had had a little band playing around my hometown. We knew three or four songs. That was about it. But we'd play them over and over and over all night long. You know? <laughs> no, no idea about how you set things up. So he said, okay, Fats Domino going to do this. You do that. And then you sing it down three times. And Fats going to come in again. And Herbert Hardison will go. I said, okay, fine. Now, nervous and 
I'm a, I've never done any of this before. No rehearsal. I don't know what it is, rehearsal. So I do exactly what he tell me. The difference is I'm repeating the verses over and over and over. I don't know how to make the song. I don't. He said, you got to have a beginning, a middle, and an ending. You can't sing the same things over and over and over. <laughs> so when you hear, I'm going to tell my mama, you stayed out all night long. These were just things I thought about as I ad lip going down with Lord and Miss Claudia, which turned out to be the record that started the youth movement, not only in America, but around the world. That song, I never heard a playback. The first time I heard it was on the radio. Okie dokie was the guy who was playing it. And he said he had played it many times that day. He was going to play it one more time. And he says, this is by a little kid out in Kenner, Louisiana. And I knew it had to be me. I, I didn't know what I sound like. So, man, after that, the whole world broke loose. You know, the youth movement started. Kids who had never touched each other or spoke to each other in terms of race, black and white. That was the music to start bringing everybody together. And since that time... Uh, I think it was March 1952, the world changed. That music, well, have galvanized the rest of the world. Lord and Miss Claude have been recorded 178 times. Uh, Elvis recorded it, I think, 21 times in long. Everybody who's important in terms of rock and roll, including Billy Joel, the Beatles, Chuck Berry, Fats Domino, they all, Little Richard, they all recorded this song, Lord and Miss Claudia. And uh, that was the beginning of rock and roll. And that's how it started. I was on my way to Pittsburgh and got a call from Larry Newton. Said, listen, before you go to Australia, you got to get us another song. We got to have a record out before you go to Australia. So I had been playing around with this idea in my head about everything and everybody has a personality. People walk with personality, they talk with a personality, they smile with a different personality. Only thing I had to do was find a turnaround. And I think 20 minutes on the turnpike, on my way to Pittsburgh, I had to turn around. And that was over and over. I don't know why I think that that hook came from Wade in the Water. Wade in the Water. Wait in the water, children. And I somehow I connect that with over and over. I tried to prove my love to you. Because you walk with personality. Talk it was the easy thing. Once I found just how to make that work, you know, get that hook in there. Mm -hmm. And it, I think I, it came from Wade in the Water in my mind. Yeah. That's amazing. Came back to New York. One take. Don Costa did the arrangement and one take in the studio. It was done and I went on to Australia. <laughs> <laughs> and you've been performing that ever since, haven't you? Ever since. You know, it's been recorded in 17 different languages and many, 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 many different recordings on it. Uh, from, uh, uh, oh God, I can't begin to name the different people. It was the Pat Boone Chevy Show, Patty Page. 
I mean, on and on. You couldn't go on a cruise ship without hearing personality. No island. People had to do personality. Every artist in Vegas had to do personality. Wayne Newton closes shows with personality. It just was an amazing song because it was so simple, because it was true. People walk with personality, talk with personality. Every living creature has a different personality. Yeah. <laughs> the song still, I mean, just right, I think maybe three weeks ago, there's a, a TV show in Australia. It's called Personality. Amazing. Oh, right? The NFL, three years ago, used the song to sell their mer mer merchandise. Oh, my goodness. The song just goes on and on and on and on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're going to send it back to the songwriting team of Lieber and Stoller, and we're going to be hearing them first talking about writing Loving You, specifically for Elvis, as well as that Jailhouse Rock recording. And then uh, you get to hear them tell the story you heard Dan tell earlier, which I gave him a hard time about, <laughs> which probably got cut out of this podcast. Um, but you're going to hear them talking about writing Hound Dog and how for uh, Big Mama Thornton. And then when Elvis picked it up, he changed the lyrics a little bit, which is a pretty cool story. So here they are. Was Loving You specifically for him? It no. was for Loving You, yeah. It was specifically for the movie oh. that was titled Loving You. But not before him. It was it written before him. No, oh, for him. For Sorry. him. For him. Did Sorry. you say for yeah, him? For yeah, him. it Sorry. was written for him and for the movie, um, as were the songs for Jailhouse Rock, written for a movie. Yeah. Neither of those movies were titled Loving You or Jailhouse Rock until after we had written songs. And then they changed the title of the film to the title of the song. Was that King Creole as well? No, King Creole, I believe, was the scripted title they had for that Stone for Danny Fisher yeah. story. I think that that was the scriptwriter's uh, title. Interesting. Did you, uh, speaking of uh, Jailhouse Rock, the soundtrack, were you playing piano on uh, I Want to Be Free? No. No? No. I played piano on... Uh, treat me nice. I was coming back from my first trip to Europe. We'd had uh, a hit, and I got a check for $5,000. And I thought I'd never see that much money again in my life at one time, anyway. And I went to Europe for three months and came back uh, in style on a ship called the Andrea Doria. And uh, in 1956, I uh, was coming back to New York, actually, from uh, Naples. And uh, it collided in uh, fog with a ship called the Stockholm. And uh, eventually it sank. I managed to get off in a broken lifeboat and was eventually picked up by a freighter. And a freighter brought us into New York. And Jerry was waiting at the dock. He'd apparently been watching it on television or radio. Um, 
you know, this tragedy at sea. And he ran up and he said, Mike, you're okay, you're all right. I said, yeah, yeah, I'm okay. And he said, Mike, we got a smash hit. I said, you're kidding. He said, no, hound dog. I said, Big Mama Thornton? He said, no, some white kid named Elvis Presley. <laughs> and then I heard the record two days later. What did you think? Too fast. Wrong feel. Wrong lyrics that he changed the song to. You ain't never caught a rabbit and you ain't no friend of mine. It's not anything close to what I wrote. Were you upset about that? Yeah. Uh, mainly because, not just because it was a, 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 a faux pun, it was a lyrical, uh, but uh, it changed the whole story of the song. The song was about a woman kicking a gigolo out of her house. And it starts with, you ain't nothing but a hound dog, quit snooping at my door. You can wag your tail, but I ain't gonna feed you no more. Now that is the lyric, and it's got to do about, I'm not going to let you, you know, soft soap me or hang out on me or any of that stuff. I'm kicking you out. The other thing about a rabbit was, go figure what that is. You ain't never caught a rabbit and you ain't no friend of mine. I mean, that really is country. <laughs> so, uh, but it came out and it was a smash. It was a smash. And we were happy that it was a smash. And we had a hard time looking a gift horse in the mouth and, or the teeth or anywhere else. <laughs> and uh, we it, started writing for him. It gave us the opportunity to, to write more stuff for him. Specifically for him? Yeah. 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 Was Loving You specifically for him? It no. was for Loving You, yeah. It was specifically for the oh. movie that was titled Loving You. But not before him. You see, was it written before him? No, oh, for, him. for him. For him. Did Sorry. you say for, yeah, him? for him? Yeah, it Sorry. was written for him and for the movie. So that rounds out our segment on specific recordings. And you can't, I don't know if we could have a Pioneers of Rock and Roll podcast, let alone any podcast, with Dan without <laughs> mentioning <laughs> without mentioning his favorite hero the king himself Elvis That's true you can't I mean it's hard That's to have true. a work day where Elvis doesn't come <laughs> right? out Right so. <laughs> And I'm not even wearing my Elvis socks today Oh missed opportunity Yes indeed So if you are like Dan and you need more Elvis in your life all the Elvis you can get uh we release a two part episode back in January of 2018, all about Elvis. So you can always go back and check that out. Um, but if you want what I'm hoping will be a condensed version all about Elvis, uh, we're going to get into our last segment where we kind of focus on him. Would you like to give us any fun facts about Elvis? Well, I, of course I would. Um, the timer starts now. So Starts now. <laughs> I just want to say I think this is a, a fantastic uh, tribute. But if Elvis was here, I think he'd be a little embarrassed because these guys that we're talking about, particularly Fats Domino, uh, Dave Bartholomew, Lloyd Price, uh, Lieber and Stoller, 
and uh, and Bo Diddley were all heroes of his and people that he aspired to be. And so he, I think he'd be a little bit embarrassed that we're singling him out. Uh, but it is fun because uh, three of the folks that we talked about, or actually more than that, three or four of the folks that we talked uh, earlier will be talking specifically about Elvis in their interviews. So we thought we'd put all that together. So first we'll start, uh, talk about uh, Dwayne Eddy, I believe. Yeah, so we're going to hear Dwayne Eddy giving his first impressions of Elvis, and then we'll just roll right into DJ Fontana also kind of going off the same topic. What did you think of, of Elvis when you first heard him? I just, uh, the first time I heard him, uh, country singer named Chuck Mayfield was from a town farther south in Arizona than mine called Eloy. They called him the Eloy Flash. And uh, anyway, he recorded there in Phoenix and, and he was a good country singer. But, um, and somehow he wound up on a tour in Texas. And for part of that tour, it happened to be the same tour that Elvis was on with uh, Hank Snow. You remember that? early tour he did. Early on. Yeah, it was very early. Elvis's first tour, actually, and um, and one of Chuck's first, but he ended up on that same show and he came came back and, and Lee Hazelwood was a disc jockey at this time. This was like 1955, I guess, 56, and uh, uh, early 56. And uh, 55, I don't know. Yeah, about 50, late 55. And Lee was a had a DJ job in Phoenix by this time, and uh, and uh, so Chuck brought these records back and said, "Lee, I want you to hear this guy." He said, "You won't believe it." He says he sings like a black guy, and you know, like a blues singer kind of. And uh, he says, "But he's, he's it's amazing." He says the girls go nuts over him. He says they just scream and cry and carry on, he says, and he just stands up there and shakes his leg and sings, and he says, the wildest thing you ever saw. So we went in the station, we were out in the parking lot This for that conversation, we went to the station, and Lee put him on the turntable, and that's the first time I heard Elvis, and he was That's All Right Mama, or Blue Moon of Kentucky, and he had a couple of records with two sides on each side. So we listened to the four songs, Lee fell in love with it, and he said, and started playing it on his show, which made him the first DJ in Phoenix to play Elvis Presley. And they had a, you know, a lot of feedback from it. A lot of people loved it, of course. Then there were those who said, what are you playing that race music for? What are you playing that blue stuff? And, and worse names than that. But uh, he kept on playing and almost lost his job over it. But he's, you know, in those days, the DJs were independent pretty much and could play what they wanted to, and uh, to a point. And he almost reached that point, but uh, he did, they did make him cut back on a number of times he played the records, but uh, he never stopped playing him. The lady at the record store called him up one day and said, what's this Arvis Parsley guy uh, something like that, she said. Uh, driving us nuts down here. She says, trying to buy his records, and I don't even know where to order them. So Lee told her, well, order them from Sun Records in Memphis, and whoever handles that line. So she did, and then started selling. And uh, 
Then I saw him a year later after he'd done Heartbreak Hotel, gone to uh, when uh, uh, Sam Phillips sold him to RCA and uh, sold his contract to him. And uh, he did Heartbreak Hotel and then he started his big tour, Elvis did, around the country. And he came to Phoenix, to Fairgrounds, and that was, uh, I went to see the show sitting in the grandstand there and watching the girls climb up on the wire, chain link wire that was up in front to protect people from flying parts off of the race cars, you know, I guess. And uh, they were climbing 10, 15 feet up it and clinging to it like monkeys, you know, screaming. And we went set through a dog act and, and uh, some clowns or something and then and here came Scotty and the guys, and and uh, they ran up on stage and, and or came up on stage, and you know their instruments were there, and picked them up, plugged in their stuff and everything, and guitars and amps, and uh, and then they just started a little. Uh, something like that, you know, a little vamp way back at the far end of the track, way over in the other side of the field, this black limousine came out, cruising, cruised around the track, all the way around the track at about five miles an hour. Meanwhile, as Scotty and them were just blazing away, you know, just... And comes around, pulls in right next to the stage, stops, and just sits there. Music's going. Finally, the door pops open, the screaming gets louder, and further, and uh, out comes a leg. And then Elvis pulled himself the rest of the way out, bounded up the steps, and kicked into a song, you know, a train, mystery train, or whatever it was. And they just went crazy. And but I thought this is amazing. I watched the whole show, and I thought, man, that's what I'd like to do, you know. And uh, I didn't know how or when or how or why, but uh, how it happened. But I sure I did. That's when I thought, well, rock and roll is great, you know. I always loved country, and I still do, but. This rock and roll is amazing, so it had a big impact. That sounds like what a great story. <laughs> it was a great, uh, great moment. Well, you know, you come in, you know, with his clothes first, you know, the pink pants and pink shirts, and I said, well, and the hair, you know, the sideburn. I said, the boy's got something, you know. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's something you couldn't put your finger on. You know, you don't know what the heck he's doing, because it was new. You know, the cowboys had their cowboy suits, and you know, you're used to seeing that. But when this kid coming in with his shoes, two-tone shoes, all kind of colored shirts, and, uh, and and if you and I would have wore those combinations, we'd have looked like freaks, you know, out there. But everything he put on, he looked good in it, really good. I don't know how, but he did. Because he was a handsome little guy anyhow, you know. Next up, we're going to hear from Wanda Jackson again, and she is going to be talking about her first tour with Elvis. The first person 
that I toured with out of high school was Elvis Presley. Wow. So this was uh, July, well, my tour with him was in July of um, 55. And I had never heard of him at that point. I, you know, I just, I didn't know who it was or who I was working with. Then I met him at a radio station that afternoon of the first day of our tour, and I was very impressed with him. He was a nice-looking guy and uh, very mannerly and nice. And so uh, it wasn't until that evening that, <laughs> that you know, I really didn't know who I was working with. I thought he was a country singer. <laughs> so I, I was in for a shock. But as it turned out, uh, I got to work with him biggest part of two years. And so there again, he became a mentor for me in, in the way of, uh, of encouraging me to sing uh, rockabilly, which was really sweeping the nation. And I said, well, I can't really do that because I'm a country singer. And he said, well, he said, I'm a country singer basically, but I know you can do this music. And the kids are beginning to buy the records these days instead of the adults. And this is the kind of music they want, so you've got to try it. And he even took me to his home and um, played records and played the guitar and sang and trying to show me how I could get a feel for this. He had that much confidence in me, and so he made me promise I would at least try. <laughs> and so by 1956, I had the courage to, to try and I think I really found my niche when I did the rockabilly songs. I just, I, I was so comfortable doing them and I loved it and I could just rear back and sing, you know. And So through that I kind of established a style the, for girls in this rock vein. I was the first one to record. I was just out there on a limb by myself. <laughs> And nobody knew exactly what to do with me. <laughs> but we finally got some hits, you know. It, it took a few years. America just wasn't ready for a girl singing this wild rock music. And uh, they had just barely accepted Elvis and Jerry Lee and Carl Perkins and Johnny Cash. And they just wouldn't accept me at first. But finally they... Uh, you know, rock music was just in their face and there wasn't anything they could do about it <laughs> because the kids were uh, wanting it. And I finally got uh, a hit by 1960. And ironically, it was one of uh, Elvis's songs that he did in the movie, but it's called Let's Have a Party. And it became uh, a signature song for me in rockabilly music and throughout the world. So I was just out there on a limb by myself, and, and America was having trouble accepting a girl doing this music. And not only was I singing it, I had changed the style of my dress. Uh, girls uh, in hillbilly music wore full skirts and cowboy boots and sometimes a hat on the back. And I had been trying to wear that, and I just didn't like it. And... Uh, <laughs> 
I was short and I just looked real frumpy in those clothes and my mother had always made clothes for me so we said well why don't we make this like a um, an evening dress more you know let's get rid of all that heavy stuff and the full skirt and she made me tight-fitting skirts and rhinestone spaghetti strap dresses and fairly low and we put fringe on it and so that made me I guess really quite a wild woman <laughs> in the 50s so it really wasn't all that wild but uh, at the time and so ever since then uh, you don't see a whole lot of cowboy boots and things on girls so I think I help country music a lot by doing that. <laughs> Okay, so rolling along with our segment on the Pioneers of Rock and Roll, talking about Elvis, uh, here uh, once again is his drummer, DJ Fontana. And an interesting thing I wanted to bring Mike in on this is uh, a comment that was made after DJ passed away in 2018 was that uh, the recordings that Elvis had done with Scotty Moore and Bill Black as a trio weren't really technically rock and roll until DJ came on the drums. Had you ever heard that? That's very interesting to me. That is interesting. I mean, rock and roll can be defined by the drums. I mean, they make they make such a big, um, they take up such a big part of rock and roll. Um, that driving beat really defines the genre. Right. Um, so I could totally see that being the case. And I mean, DJ Fontana, that that style is is pretty iconic. Yeah, I love it. So with that in mind, let's hear from DJ. How did, um, how did it change for you um, in terms of all of a sudden no job to a pretty good job? <laughs> well, yeah, well, you know, anytime you're making a couple bucks, it, it's always good. You know, and, and it started out, he didn't pay much money at all because they wasn't making any money. They, it, the concerts we were playing, we'd have Johnny Cash, Jerry Lee, we have Roy Orbison sometimes, uh, Carl Perkins, tickets one dollar for all these people. Uh, little high school gyms, uh, football stadiums, small high school football stadiums. So you know, there's no money really, and maybe maybe each artist got 150 dollars for everybody, and that was it. You know, I don't care who the artist is, country, pop, rock. You never know when you cut a record. If the people are going to like it, or the, or the company's going to back you, or what? But he, he had an ace on him, uh, Steve Scholes, the guy that brought him to Victor, paid the 35000 for him. Well, either he got a hit record, or he was out of a job. That's what it amounted to. So Steve wasn't going to let it die, you know, because RCA said, well, we're going to stick our neck out. Now, if you don't, uh, if he doesn't do something, one or two records, out you go. We're going to lose $35,000. And they didn't want to do that. So luckily, he hit, you know. So that kind of rounds out our podcast today on the Pioneers of Rock and Roll. We really appreciate you guys sticking with us uh, all this time. And uh, if you want to check out these interviews or any others, you can do so on our website, which is www.nam.org library. And we thought we'd leave you with a closing remark today. And that comes from Dave Bartholomew, who kind of sums it up in his own words, how he defines rock and roll. Who better to give us the definition than Dave himself? So here's Dave. And in two weeks, we'll see you again. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Rock and roll uh, is the same as rhythm and blues. 
Many, many years ago, you used to call it black music. We had three or four different categories. You had pop. That was Benny Goodman, Ella Fitzgerald, Frank Sinatra. Pop music. You had blues music, which they call it rhythm and blues, like B.B. King and that type of thing. Then you had Andy Quigg Band. And you had Dinah Washington. But that was considered swing. You understand? Mm -hmm. Then when actually then Fats and I come along and I added a big beat. Instead of having those big chords where I had sound like I'm, I'm, I'm playing the nines and the thirteens. I don't know if you're musically inclined. I just had triads where the people could sing along with us. And I always think about the lead. Could they sing this? And that's what I did. And they didn't know what the hell to call it. And it went 99% white. And that was rock and roll. It was nothing but rhythm and blues with a beat. <laughs>